0: We are studying the book of Jonah, and he is the prophets, so I, I watched the Bible Project. It's BibleProject.com, and they put out really great scholarly stuff in a cartoon form to, so you can digest the richness of the scriptures and the role of a prophet without further delay. Here's the prophets. Have been very powerful, sweet speakers. Well, some
1: were, right. but others lived on the markets. They would often perform strange, symbolic stunts in public to communicate the message. Like when Ezekiel laid the dirt and built a model of Jerusalem being attacked by Babel. Or when Isaiah walked around David for three years about the people of the humiliation So the people came.
0: You know, I, uh, I watch those. Um, sometimes I watch them with my kids just to kind of explain certain, you know, concepts. Sometimes it's better for someone else to tell them the Bible than their dad sometimes when they get older. They want, you want another voice, parents? There's another voice for you that it's really, really awesome. And I also use it use at youth camp as well. So Jonah, you know, we're, we're on this amazing journey looking at his, his life and looking at the situation. We've covered chapter one where Jonah runs from the Lord. He goes to Tarshish. I mean, he runs. He really runs. He runs to the end of the earth run. And chapter 2, he's, he's swallowed up by a fish and after three days he gets spit out. He changes his mind he says, okay, I'll go do what you want, God. I'll go preach to Nineveh and I'll do it. And then he does it. And then in chapter 4, we wish Jonah would end in chapter 3, but it doesn't. And the question that, that came to, to, to the forefront is how hard is your heart when we read the Bible we hope that we want you, you read it like it's a mirror into your soul so you can see clearly what you need to change <clears throat> because that impresses God that moves God and, and God and us we're aligned on the same page that's why it's important when you read your Bible to read it as a mirror reflecting what and when where you're at spiritually so as we close out chapter 3, this is the last sentence in chapter 3 of Jonah. When God saw, so he goes in for three days, he preaches, he walks through the whole city 20 miles a day, and he says, you know, 40 days and Nineveh is going to be destroyed, you know, and he, he leaves. He just says five Hebrew words and he's, I'm done. And, he, and, he, and, the, and the Ninevites' response in verse 10, when God saw what they, the Ninevites, did and how they turned from their evil ways... He relented and did not bring on the destruction that he had threatened. Now, God didn't change his mind. The Ninevites changed their minds. God is consistent. Whenever we change, God responds. He's consistent. The destruction was withheld because the Ninevites decided to change. And that's the end of chapter 3. Wouldn't it be great if Jonah was just three chapters? I mean, because chapter 4 is one of the darkest chapters in the entire book. you think it's ugly now? Wait till we re- reveal chapter 4. The Ninevites repent, and Jonah literally, at that moment, is the most successful prophet in Hebrew history. I mean, he could do TED Talks. I mean, he can go to synagogues saying, this is what you got to do. I mean, this would be the most amazing feat that anyone's ever accomplished. Then a nation turns, an entire nation just repents on your five words. You know, when ministers hear stories like that, we go, hey, what'd you do, bro? Right after the greatest national revival in human history, we see Jonah's heart. Now there's two tracks in in this story here. One track is that God wants to call the Ninevites to him, and the other track is that God wants Jonah's heart to match his own. Jonah goes to Nineveh and preaches. He outwardly obeys, but there's something going on on the inside. Let's take a look at the passage here. Let me go back one. Because obedience that is displayed on the outside does not define us. What do you mean, Gio? Why oh, not you show up to church? Sing a song, sit down. Sometimes you play a song. Sometimes you preach a sermon. Everybody thinks everyone's okay. External obedience does not define us. It's the eternal, internal things that are going on in our hearts that define us. Because eventually, what's on the inside is going to come out there's going to come a situation in your life where what's inside your heart will be revealed and you will be exposed for what's in there. That's why it's important for us to think internally, not externally. That's why coming to church, that's just half the battle. There's a lot more that God wants. God wants your heart. So chapter 4 is like an x-ray into the heart of Jonah. And we're going to see him internally because he's been avoiding God and avoiding the conversation. And this is what tends to happen. Because God doesn't need your help, but he definitely wants your heart. Believe it or not, God can accomplish his will without you or without me. He doesn't need us, but he wants us to join him. He wants a partnership. He's totally capable of of, uh, redeeming the Ninevites without Jonah. But he wants our hearts. You know, one time the Israelites wanted a king, just like the other nations. And the prophet was Samuel at that time, and Samuel didn't like their request. So God said, hey, give them what they want. And so guess what the people chose? Samuel and the people thought they'd pick a tall, handsome, presidential guy by the name of Saul of, uh, Saul of the Benjamites. He was a head taller than everybody else. And then Samuel was on the hunt. Samuel went to the son of Jesse and saw all of, all of David and his brothers. And he says, this must be the guys because they look strong. They're handsome. They're amazing. And God says, let me tell you, Samuel, do not just consider the outside because I don't look at the outside. I look at what's inside the human hearts. It's important to God What's inside of us? Because what's on, what's on the outside does not define us. Now, three days in the belly of the fish, that would maybe change and soften a man's position, but it may not change his heart. Let's take a look. In Ephesians 6 6, it says, do, Paul's writing, Hey, church, do the will of God, but do it from your heart. Do it from your heart. Don't just do it from the outside. You know, yesterday we went, uh, some of us went to the um, Casa Pacifica and we got to spend some time with some foster kids just for a couple hours. <clears throat> and I left there feeling so humbled that they are willing to hang out with us. I did not feel like I was doing them a favor. I feel like they were doing me a favor. That's how impacted I left. I was like, that was an amazing experience. Just to spend time with some kids whose parents, for whatever reason, aren't in their life anymore. And just to play basketball, just to play soccer. I was actually trying to win. We lost, but (laughs) um, it was amazing. And I can't tell you how soft my heart was on the inside, even though on the outside we were doing fun things, but it was just so humbling to spend time with them. Because Jesus warns us. You know, he asked the disciples when, when he's feeding 5,000, hey, are your hearts hard? I mean, he could be asking you that. He could be asking me that. Here's the truth of the matter. A hard heart is the most frustrating thing in the world because it's so easy to disguise. A hard heart is so easy to mask. There's no accountability for a hardened heart. We hold people for what they hold accountable people for what they say and what they do. Not what's on the inside. Because we just don't know what's on the inside. A hard heart is insidious. It'll compromise you. If you don't recognize it. It'll destroy your spiritual vitality. And the surprising thing about having a hard heart, all of what I just said is true without us knowing. We can have a hard heart right now and not be aware of it. We can convince ourselves sitting right here, my heart is soft, but then a situation arises in your life and there comes the hardness of your heart. We so easily deceive ourselves. It's hard to detect. That's why God says, I examine the heart. He looks at our hearts because it's important to him. The only thing that can cut through a hard heart is the word of God. And only if you let it. I've, I've sat there. I've heard sermons with a hard heart. I've nodded and took notes with a hard heart. I amen with no intentions of obeying what was just said. I've done that many times. I'm sure you have too. He says, be careful. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees. What's that? Well, yeast in the ancient world. It would change the identity of the material that it was mixed with. And and in in ancient times, it was known for sin in the Israelites' mind. Watch out. It represented sin because it would change the identity of what it was mixed with. So Jesus says, be careful. And that word, be careful, describes a reflecting because of experience to draw the right conclusions for the next steps in your life. Thoughtful discernment. Think of it that way. To take a step back and ask yourself, is this really who I want to be? Jesus says, be careful. Careful, Because a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. Just a little bit of yeast will kill you spiritually. The Pharisees were the poster boys in the New Testament and the Old, near the Intertestaments, for doing everything the right way. Literally, they would do everything right, but without a soft heart. They were the poster boys. It was not flowing from a humble heart. Doing the right thing was not a humble thing. They just wanted to do it. But they were doing it with a hard heart. And then when Jesus came, the hardness of their heart got exposed. Even though they were doing all the right things. So we're not going to boo Jonah today. It's easy. But I want us to be careful. I want you to recognize yourself in the story of Jonah chapter 4. Because we're going to take a look at four characteristics of how a a heart gets hardened. And we're going to look at that today through the story of of Jonah. Chapter 4, verse 1. But to Jonah, this repentance of the Ninevites, that's what this means, seemed very wrong. And he became angry. He became what? Angry. And that's the first stage of a hard heart. Hardening begins in an angry heart. You want to know something about anger? Anger doesn't check itself. It just grows. It's like a fire. It'll burn till everything in its way is consumed. Unless someone else extinguishes or someone extinguishes the fire, it'll keep going. That's what anger will do to you. It'll consume you. Until there's no more of you left. It's anger. Anger arises most of the time from being hurt. Because anger is a secondary emotion. It's not a primary. I you know guys, we like to think, we're just angry. That's my, no, no. We were hurt, injured, offended. Something happened that makes, made us angry. The primary emotions are hurt, fear, and powerlessness. For me, when I get scared, I get angry. It's easy. It's zero. It's 100 yards in like a millisecond. And if we're not careful, anger will make a bad situation worse. So we need to turn that corner with our anger because anger will never turn the corner and want to do the right thing. Because anger does not check itself; it just burns. Very famous passage, Ephesians chapter four, verse twenty-six: "In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry." There are actually three words for anger, just like there's three words for love. It's important that we know the difference of anger. In this text, the word thumos is a word is, is, is anger, but it is not in the text. Thumos is an is a like I am freaking out anger. I just threw the couch through the window. It's visible. I just slammed doors. I kicked a hole in the drywall. I threw my keys through the window. I am raging. That's thumos, But that's not in this passage, but that's one of the words of anger. thumos, ang- Thumo, that kind of anger, it harms people. It harms people around you. It'll harm your relational world. This is why we have to reel that in, our anger, because God's given you a mission to reach out to your relational world. That's why we don't want to get stuck in the problem of having a hard heart, and that starts with anger. And sometimes what we do with anger, when we're angry, we we distance ourselves, we push away, we pull away, we're going, hey, I don't want to be involved. Because anger is never described in the Bible as an appropriate behavior for God's people. It's never described that way. That it's appropriate. Because anger is not appropriate. Especially Thumos' anger. Then there's the other anger. The other anger is Paragismo. It sounds Italian, but it's not screek. Greek. This anger is the E. I, I, I'm not throwing my keys. I'm not throwing the couch. The couch can stay. This anger is inside. And it's seething. I might smile at you but I am seething. It's the internal anger. It's the internal bitterness. And it's the same anger that Jonah is experiencing. He's seething. He obeyed God, but he is seething. He's angry. He's angry that God rescued people. And he is ticked. Paragismo will target you. It will ruin you. That's why you don't want to let it linger. It says don't let it linger. Don't let this anger linger. And this is what we deal with as a, as a fallen human state spiritually. If we let anger linger in our hearts, it'll ruin you. It'll ruin your relationships. And then there's the last Anger. Orge. Now what's funny is that Jonah thinks he's Orge. Because Orge is like, the, the, the I'm indignant because something is trying to stop God. I'm at. Someone's, something's preventing God's will. And I'm angry because God needs to do his work. And I'm upset that something's blocking God. I, I'm righteously indignant. I'm angry at this because it's, I, it's righteous to do this. Because God wants to do something. Jonah thinks He has this kind of righteous indignation. He thinks he should be defending what God should be defending. And it's pretty hard to claim that you got orge when God is arguing with you about your anger and why you're not accomplishing his mission. But this is where he's at. This is where Jonah is. In verse 2, he prayed to the Lord. Isn't this what I said, Lord? Gives you a little idea of what happened earlier. Isn't this what I told you when I was still at home? So him and God were talking. Didn't I tell you this would happen? That if you, if we go over there, they might change. I told you this would happen. This is why I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you're a gracious and compassionate God. He's quoting a Bible verse here. I knew you're slow to anger. I knew you're abounding in love. I know you're a God who relents from sending calamity. You should be angry and you're not God. And Jonah is quoting uh, quoting a scripture in his defense. Now Lord, now that I've ranted, take away my life for it's better for me to die than to live. When you read that, you're going, what's gotten into this guy? Like, what is the matter with you? His anger has gone unchecked his seethingness that was allowed to fester. And that leads us to stage two. is self-justification. It's a classic. I'm mad, and because of my anger, I've allowed it to fester, the sun's gone down, and I'm gonna defend my anger. You ever get that fight with with a friend, or with your wife, or your husband? You're angry. You try to come back and resolve it, because would you come back with, this, with, this, with, a, with a, a self-justification? Usually, when I try that and with my wife, it never works. It just makes my anger worse, because I try to justify. Instead of giving her justice for what I've done, I justify my actions by quoting a scripture. If you were more humble, I wouldn't have gotten angry. If you hadn't said those words, I wouldn't be upset. We justify. He's telling God, I knew it. I knew you'd do it. This is why I pushed back. This is why I ran, God. See, I knew you'd do that. That's why I took off, man. But you made me, man. You brought a fish. Disgusting. He's justifying his anger. Because, yeah, I knew you. I knew. I knew what you told Moses. What you told Moses. I knew when you said, when you passed in front of Moses, you said the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Jonah justifies his position by quoting a passage of the Bible. The last guy I know to do that was Satan and Jesus in the wilderness. He's quoting a Bible verse here on God. Say, look it. When you think about it, God, I'm a little more consistent than you. You can always find a verse to justify your position. We can always find one. But that's out of context, and so is yours, and so is mine. And this leads to a next stage of a hard heart, and that's blindness. Spiritual blindness. If you justify your anger you justify your grudge if you justify your bitterness for a sufficient amount of time you'll become blinded to the character and to the love of God newsflash God is merciful and in the book of Jonah who has God not shown mercy to let's take a look real quick he showed mercy to the sailors from on the boat Jonah's there and they thought they were going to die and You know, God spares the sailors. They lost their cargo. It's Jonah's fault. But God spares the sailors. Then God saves Jonah in the belly of a fish. And then God saves the Ninevites when they're in their sin. It's important to know what makes you angry. Because anger will block God's heart in your life. Now, Jonah very well represented the feelings of many Israelites. They didn't like Assyria. Assyria was one of the most grotesque people. It was the Assyrian international crisis problem. People hated the Assyrians. How they treated people when they would do their excursions. They would would kill and destroy. They were just brutal. They, They loved to torture people. And Jonah's way of getting rid of Assyria was to smoke them whether or not they changed or not. He didn't care. God's solution to Assyria, is- the, the international crisis, was to call them to repentance. If nothing else, the book of Jonah could solve a dilemma for some of us who think that the God of the Bible is a bloodthirsty, massacred, genocidal God who just loves blood. The God of the Old Testament is nowhere near that, as you can see. He destroys that myth because the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So much for the bloodthirsty God myth. There's a reason why God destroyed certain cities to everyone. There's a reason why, and I'll tell you that in a later sermon, but there's a very good reason why that happens. That's for another sermon. And it leads to the four stages you got anger, you got self justification, you're blinded, and now you become rigid. From blindness to rigidity, your heart becomes that one of stone. What's ironic is you and I have a responsibility before God. And you might well be a product of your past. A lot of us sitting here, we were injured many, for many years ago. We are hurt. We are enslaved to our emotions. We are injured. But the truth was revealed to us. And that truth has set us free from our bondage. And that's important because we have a responsibility because God is in the business of changing lives. Not burying our lives in our past. Yeah, we've got to deal with some issues in our past. Yeah, amen. But let's not be a slave to our past. It isn't just the Ninevite God wants to save. It's Jonah he wants to save. He wants to save Jonah because he knows that Jonah's heart is hard. That's why we have chapter 4. And what's in there is ugly. God, just like God wants to save those in our relational world, God wants to save the the Ninevites. And he wants to save Jonah. As you have your relational world, God wants to rescue those those people in your world. But God also wants you to grow spiritually at the same time. That's our responsibility. But the Lord replied... Is it right for you to be angry? He's like, Jonah, I am am holier than you'll ever be. Like, and yet you're angry and I'm not. Does this make any sense? I mean, honestly. Does it make any sense to Jonah? Jonah, your anger is blocking your ability to see things logically. I don't know about you, but when you're angry, logic goes out the window. You don't think rationally. You don't act rationally. That's actually chemically proven. When you're angry, something happens to your brain where logic is blocked. And you'd say stupid things like, I'm leaving. I don't love you. Mm -hmm. I wish you were dead. You say crazy things to people you care about. Because logic goes out the window when you're angry. And that's where Jonah's at. So Jonah goes out he leaves the city and he sits down at a place east of the city and there he made himself a shelter he sat in its shade and waited to see what would happen to the city then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow over Jonah to give him shade for his head to ease his discomfort and Jonah was happy about the plant so Jonah leaves the city he withdraws Usually when you're done with the sermon and people are changing, you want to hang around a little bit. It's good fellowship. Hey, man, that's awesome. Thank you so much. He leaves. Just look what I'm going to do today. I'm going to preach and I'm going to leave because I'm not feeling well. In order to save you from what I have, I'm just going to leave. But not because I have a hard heart because I don't want to get anybody sick and I got sick in the last minute and I didn't want to call Joe and put the sermon on him at the last second. So I'll leave like you want to do, but know that my heart is okay. You know, when you're angry at people, sometimes you only want to be around holy people, and then you realize you're the only holy person you know. Oh, it's just me. Because we isolate. When we're angry, we isolate, we justify, we become blind, and if people were just like me, they would get it. And no one's with you because you're alone. So God gives him shade. And by the way, this is the first time Jonah's happy in the book, ever. First time he's happy. He's happy over at shelter, that God made. And you're thinking, like, do I want to be that guy? Do I want to be that guy? But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm, which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind. And the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, "It would better. It would be better for me to die." Than to it, I just want to God. I want to reiterate my death wish. I cannot bear to see the salvation of the Ninevites. Just kill me. Just end me. But God said to Jonah, "Is it right for you to be angry about the plan? It is." And I'm so angry. I wish I were dead. But the Lord said. You've been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight, and it died overnight. And it's like, Jonah, what is up with you, man? You're angry about the plant? One day you're happy, one day you're angry again? So you're so, so concerned about this plant, yet you didn't do anything. It's not even your plant, it's my plant. And he's angry. He's seething. And should I not have concern, this is God talking to Jonah, should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left? That phrase right there has puzzled scholars. Because there's no literary literary, uh, context for that phrase. In other words, they can't find it in the literature of its time. The Bible was was not written uh, to us, but it was written for us. It was written to a people back long ago, but we can still read it and learn things from it. So that phrase right there has puzzled scholars. You can look at it two ways. One, you can look at it as adults who are so grotesque and so ignorant of God that they don't know their right hand from their left. Or... It could be children who don't know their right from their left. And remember the way the Ninevites treated their children. A Ninevite man could kill his child if he didn't want it. That's why when they, when they conquered Samaria and the children of the Israelites were there, they, they didn't blink to pick them up and hit them against the rocks. They didn't blink. They killed their own. They were famous for that. So one point of view is God worried about the young little Ninevites who don't know their right hand from their left. I land there because that says more about the heart of God. God is deeply compassionate. Either way is fine. You don't have to have one, one's not right, one's not wrong. It's just, it has puzzled scholars for years on those two positions. And then it ends with the question. They don't know their right hand from their left and also many animals. And then the book ends. I mean, if you want it to be tidy, wrapped up in a bow on a shelf, this is you're gonna be disappointed. This is not how the book of Jonah ends. It ends with the bizarre questions about the animal. It just ends right there. We don't know what Jonah did. We don't know if Jonah died. We don't know if Jonah changed his heart. We don't know anything. Because the book of Jonah is not about Jonah. It's about God and his character. That he cares for people. And God is preparing anyone who reads this book. He's preparing you. He wants you to look into your own hearts. And find the anger and the blindness that's making your heart hard. Because when you leave here this week, there's going to be a situation that will reveal your hardened heart. Step one, or stage one, is anger. Remember, secondary emotion. Two is you, you justify it. Three, you're blind to the character of God. And four, you become so rigid, you're inflexible. Nothing will move you. The words of God won't move you. And you're rigid. God is wanting you to grab your destiny. Because a hard heart will grab you by the throat. And it will not let go. You gotta muscle it off you. It's gonna take some work. Don't think a sermon's gonna change your hard heart. It takes work. A lot of work. Think of it as a there's a hard heart in, the, in, a, in a lake, a, a small pond. And your heart's at the bottom of the pond. To get to your heart and to make it soft, you have to get a bucket and you've got to draw out the water. One bucket at a time. And that's going to take work. Because it makes us rigid. And as you go out this afternoon and this week, be mindful and remember to do the will of God with soft heart. To be a Jesus influencer with people that are in your world. Be intentional about it. It doesn't just happen naturally. You have to be intentional. I was hanging out with my, with my friend last night. He's part of my relational world. And there was a moment where I got to share God's word in a conversation. To emphasize a point. He's like, oh wow, thanks for sharing that. I want to be intentional. I want to minister to him. I want to love him, but I also want to minister to him. We spend a lot of time together, but I'm being intentional with him because I want him to see the heart of God. And I want God to change his heart. So as we close out the book of Jonah, he's an easy guy to pick on. But it's not about Jonah. It's about the mirror that you're looking into. And where are you? And our midweek, we're gonna discuss the book of Jonah because I'm doing the sermon And then at midweek, I'm going to have questions about the sermon. And that's going to be our template for house church this semester. It's going to be a sermon. Then we're going to discuss the sermon in house church to be cohesive and to be on the same page and have the message. About what is God doing in your life? How is God moving in your heart? So this Tuesday at midweek, we're going to go over and discuss chapter 4 of the book of Jonah. So come ready to share and come ready to give. And that concludes my sermon. We're going to have one last song by the singers. Thank <smart noise> you.